0: Hello, and welcome to Peach Pod, a Georgia politics podcast. My name is Kyle Hayes, and I am your host. And the whole gang is back together this week. Plus, we got a new member of our gang. Uh, Luke Boggs is back, as always. Luke, how are you doing?
1: Are we the gangs that Trump is always going after?
0: I don't know. I haven't seen Trump come across our radar yet. So if he's going after us, he's not doing it very effectively. Uh, Megan Payne, who hosted the show earlier this week with me, is back. Uh, Megan, how are you doing?
2: I'm doing great, Kyle. It's great to be, you know, I, I always say this, it's great to be here.
0: And I know you uh, have your eyes on some news that that uh, popped up this week. Uh, you want to share with us what you're keeping an eye on?
2: Absolutely. So um, as some of our previous listeners know, I, I focus on things, diversity, LGBT, women's rights, that sort of thing, because it's near and dear to my heart. The Supreme Court allowed the Trump transgender military ban to go into effect this past Tuesday, um, but we're not going to talk about it yet on the podcast because we're kind of waiting to see it shake out. It's the ruling was not on the merits. It was just deferred to lower courts. So we'll be hanging tight and keeping an eye.
0: Yep. That is something we will be keeping an eye on. Um, And then uh, to introduce a new member of the crew, we have Ben Stout. Uh, Ben, uh, welcome to the pod. You want to tell us a little bit about yourself and your background?
3: Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. Happy to be uh, with y'all. I'm excited to join the gang as you put it. um, I am, uh, was not born in Georgia, was raised, uh, here my whole life, but actually born in Louisiana, but got involved with Georgia politics at a very young age, was involved in a lot of elections. I come from the campaign side. So a lot of, uh, state house, state Senate races, and then a lot of congressional races have, uh, been able to have the privilege to be involved in uh, about six congressional races. And so that's my background. That's where I'm coming from. And so hopefully we'll be able to bring a, uh, a conservative kind of Georgia Republican perspective to the show and, uh, I'm excited to, uh, to get to spend some time with y'all.
0: We have growing Louisiana represent- representation I was just about to show. say,
2: I didn't know you were born in Louisiana. I was too.
3: I-, I moved when I was a month and a half, so like I oh. was like born there, but literally born there. Okay. Yeah, 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 literally born there. But my my some of my uh, family are huge Tigers fans. Um, yeah, they'll, go Tigers. they'll jump straight into like the little French rants that I don't understand, and so uh, so I've got that part of the film. But no, um, all right,
2: I'm, we'll I'm- we'll talk. We'll yeah, talk. we'll
3: talk.
0: All right. I'm looking forward to our most heated podcast, which is most definitely going to be the week leading up to the Georgia LSU game this fall. Um, so, on this week's show, we are going to start with a quick check-in on where we are uh, with the government shutdown. The there was some news today as it related as it relates to the ongoing battle between Trump and Pelosi on the State of the Union. Speech, but uh, otherwise, this is still a debate that seems kind of calcified. Um, so we're going to check in on where that is and get feedback from the whole crew. Uh, since this is the first time we've all been able to get together and discuss uh, the longest shutdown in our nation's history. Then, for our first big topic this week, we are going to uh, take an early look at the emerging field of twenty twenty Democrats seeking to uh, get the Democratic nomination for president and challenge President Trump next year. Um, We have, at this point, like five or six major candidates that have jumped into the race. um, And then another handful of what I would call tier two candidates, candidates that are a little lesser known. uh, But as we saw with Trump in 2016, and how he uh, shuffled up the entire Republican field, um, never count anybody who is declared out. And then for our final topic this week, we are going to—we're—we're we're looking ahead a lot on this episode. We're going to take a way too early look at the Georgia 2020 races. Um, a lot of the parlor conversation right now has to do with what decision Stacey Abrams is going to make. Will she challenge Senator Perdue in that race in 2020, or will she hold off and take another shot at Brian Kemp? In 2022. Uh, But we also have our first entry into the Georgia Six race, our first challenger for Lucy McBath. Um, So we're going to talk about how those races are going to develop and what we're looking for as it relates to those. Uh, But let's start with a little quick check in on the government shutdown. Um, So tonight, uh, or today, on the day that we're recording on Wednesday, there's been this back and forth between President Trump and House Speaker Nancy Pelosi over whether or not Trump is going to be able to give the State of the Union in the House of Representatives. Pelosi recently sent a letter to Trump raising some security concerns related to the government shutdown and imploring the president to either end the shutdown or to find a date later on in the future to give the State of the Union in House of Representatives. Trump sent a letter to Pelosi today that he was going to honor the original invitation from Speaker Pelosi to give the State of the Union speech. And Pelosi fired back saying that she was not going to bring up a necessary motion in the House to formalize that invitation and actually have him give that speech. Um. So tonight, Trump is looking for a new venue for his speech. Uh, but beyond that, there is continued disagreement over both the speech and any kind of solution to the government shutdown. Let's go around the group uh, to start this conversation and just tell me, from from your perspective, from where you sit, do you think that either the Democrats or the Republicans should? give in and try to strike an agreement to end this government shutdown or are you happy to see uh, these parties continue to stand their ground and and fight this out uh let's start with our uh newest member of the crew ben
3: appreciate the question uh, yeah so it's interesting i think that uh, we've seen this work in the past i mean that's obviously the, the shutdown under obama which i know a lot of republicans have referenced was for healthcare and and that ended up pretty much working out and so it's created leverage and i do think that um I do think that President Trump is—he's the type to stick it out and win it. So whenever the shutdowns happen, as a Republican, I'm usually generally pretty skeptical because I'm like, oh well, we're going to be the side that caves. But President Trump is obviously a different flavor of Republican, and for me, he strikes strikes me as a person who is is very likely to say, forget it. I'm going like, you know, don't try me. I will go all the way until the end of this thing. And so I do think that he is going to get a better deal than maybe some of the other conservatives that you have seen elected, like a, like a George W or HW might have got, should they have tried this, um, this method. But that being said, I do think it's going to come out of a compromise. I really do. Uh, I think you're going to see something even working out in its way of what came out today, right? So you use the term calcified and I still very much think that we're there, but the fact that he's saying, Hey, let's talk DACA and kind of put that out there is a as a little carrot. And then they came back with, okay, well, no wall funding, but we'll give you the whole funding. I think that's the start of where negotiations could, we could start to see negotiations come out of that.
0: Megan, the parties have each moved a little bit in this dispute. Uh, Last Saturday, the president gave a speech from the White House where he offered what he considered to be concessions, including extending DACA protections for Uh, young dreamer immigrants for three years, um, some other protections for different classes of immigrants and some funding for humanitarian aid. But he stood by his desire to have $5.7 billion for the wall. On Wednesday, the day that we're recording, uh, New York Times is reporting that Democrats are willing to accept $5.7 billion, which is Trump's number for border security, so long as that it's not a wall. And so long as that agreement occurs after the federal government opens. Um, What's your take on on where things are right now,
2: so I just want to get it out there that I think it's highly inappropriate to hold the government ransom, especially when you're affecting um, workers, the like the eight hundred thousand furloughed workers that have nothing to do with this and are being punished because they work for the federal government. And I actually don't really care what side is holding the government ransom. I don't think it's ever appropriate. Now, as things stand right now, I do like that the Dems have offered to accept $5.7 billion for border security, not a wall. I think that while I don't particularly understand the need for heightened border security, I do understand that we do need to secure our borders. So if we're going to do that, that's fantastic, you know, in some books. And I also think that it is a much better situation than building a wall, which has all kinds of implications which don't work. And um, one of the implications that's not frequently talked about is actually the environmental implications. And so that's actually really concerning to me. And again, that one seems pretty nonpartisan. So I'm actually okay with where the Dems are at right now.
1: Luke? So I think the, the major takeaway here is there is a deal to be had if the president is willing to make it. Democrats aren't unwilling to pay for border security. Senator Gillibrand, who is running for president, uh, going to hopefully, you know, she wants to run against President Trump, mentioned the importance of us allocating money to border security for counterterrorism purposes. So Democrats aren't, you know, holding an unreasonable position uh, that border security is something that they don't care about. They just don't think a wall is the right thing to do and the right way to have border security and the fact that Donald Trump is so adamant on a wall despite research and studies and the opinion of the stakeholders on the ground that a wall is not the best solution, I think it's quite clear that if he just gets off the position of I want my pretty wall, then he can have a pretty a deal that he could be pretty happy with and that would allocate a lot of money and you know, frankly more money than Democrats probably want to to border security. So... Uh, I I think I think a deal is possible. It's just they. I gotta have say to, off it. to to piggyback off that, look, I think it puts
3: President Trump in a really tough position because I mean uh, you do, he doesn't want to be in a position where he says no news tax, no new taxes, and then raises taxes, right? So he has been around all the way through the campaign, and even ever since he's been elected, in all of the the rallies he's done saying, you know, build that wall. Chance he wants to build the wall, and then if he takes the money with no wall. It's I think that it could be perceived as a no new taxes turns around and uh, and raises taxes Uh, kind of, uh, of course, the the famous situation with President uh, George H.W. So while I'm with you that I feel like that the offer right now is starting to get more reasonable, because if I'm not wrong, the previous offer before this was one dollar for the wall was the previous offer before. So the fact that Democrats are coming to come around and giving what can be conceived as a reasonable offer, I think that we're working somewhere. But for President Trump. If he were to take that offer and then tout that, he could do that. But you've got to think he's been—you say, you know, get off the wall, you know, in this pretty wall. I, I hear what you're saying, and it's a reasonable point. But he has been touting it for so long, chanting "build the wall." For him to get off the wall, it's a tough point for him now after all of the campaign promises.
1: Yeah, you know, I find it funny you bring up the uh, read my lips, no new taxes, because the fact that H.W. Uh, raised taxes the way that we got budget surpluses at the end of the 90s. And so sometimes when you get new facts and figures and uh, studies adapting your position or evolving your position, as uh, some politicians like to say, is the proper thing to do and the patriotic thing to do when you, uh, you know, discover that your campaign slogan might not be the most effective way to get the results Americans want. I hear what you're saying. But if I recall correctly, he lost the election. <laughs> well, well, you know, the uh, sometimes it's worth losing the election to uh, make the country better. So I so mean,
0: for for Trump, I I just got to sort of get the sense that Trump is kind of on an island here. I mean, he got a lot of pushback to his Saturday speech in the White House, where he offered any concessions at all. I think uh, Laura Ingram sort of um, got upset about anything that was short of Or anything that could be perceived as being sort of soft on undocumented immigrants and illegal immigration, Um, that seems to be a non starter for his base. But it's interesting to me, like, where, you know, does Trump have control over his base or does his base have control over him? Because if he makes a deal and he says, you know, well, a, a wall is, you know, we're not exactly getting a wall, but we've listened to the experts, we've listened to the generals, and they say the generals are saying, That if we do drones and we do cameras and we do some fencing here and some fencing there, that that's actually the most effective way to do it. Does his base then follow him in terms of feeling like they've won something to combat illegal immigration? Or are they hell or high water when it comes to just a big concrete wall with Trump's name engraved in it?
3: Well, yeah, I think they would actually like Trump's name and their name engraved in it. <laughs> a lot of people were like, you know, let's do the, the, you know, they do those things for like, you know, like your high school baseball team, right? Like build, buy a brick. They want their name. Uh, people get excited about that. I think that it goes both ways, right? So he can he can lead his base up to a point, but at some point it's too far for them, right? And DACA, his base will accept. So uh, I live uh, in, a, in a part of Georgia that would accept, is, is a rural part of Georgia, extremely conservative and would accept the DACA portion, but would not accept amnesty. Those are the people who I talk to on a a daily basis. And so I think that that's kind of the general Trump you can sell. And the appetite in Congress amongst Republicans is very uh, empathetic towards uh, DACA and and towards Dreamers. It really is. But I think it's um, how, how can we solve that issue and fix immigration as a uh, as a whole, but but the appetite is not there to not fix immigration and solve doc, the docky issue because then you just have more people come across and you got to deal with it again at a later point. So to answer your question, I think that it it's up to a point. I think that he could sell, oh, we're going to do portions of a wall or even he might could do border security. But if he were to say uh, we're going to do amnesty and he got the wall, I don't think the, the base is there for that. Even if he got the full wall, if it was amnesty for not just streamers, but everyone
0: that the base would not accept that. Megan, do you have any reaction to any of that?
2: Well, what I wanted to ask was, who are we saying Trump's base is? If we're saying Russia, then they've got him by the short ones.
0: <laughs> on. well, I, I think it. Uh, I think it raises an interesting numbers game for Trump, though, because he could, at least, uh, you know, my impression is that he could do everything to cater to the base, he could not give on the wall, he could drag this thing out and fight like hell and his base is going to love him. But I don't know that his base makes up 270 electoral votes in 2020. And so for him, this is why I get the sense that he's kind of on an island is he sort of led the base to a place where there's not a lot of room for him to concede or make concessions. But for the broader public for him to come up with some sort of coalition that can win him reelection. They aren't on board for the wall and they aren't on board for shutting down the government for over a month to uh, make Democrats give, give on that. And so it's like strategically for me, it just seems like Trump is not in a very good place right now.
1: Well, I, I think we need to like get to brass tacks, which is the fact that you know, over 800,000 people are currently not getting paid. And I, I purposely say not working because many of them are working without pay. And like you're, Like, people forget common sense sometimes in the sense that, like, many shutdowns have not mattered politically for folks, but, like, people are going to remember a two-month period where they weren't paid or where their family members and friends weren't paid that work in the government, and the consequences of a shutdown are just going to get worse and worse as this thing goes on, and I think... Uh, unfortunately, the you know the years of the Trump presidency, we've seen a couple shutdowns over, um, you know, issues—some serious, some not—and some just you know incompetence has led to some of the shutdowns we've had. But going into this era of divided government, one thing I think the Democrats have made very clear—I think is important—is that if if they give in now and give him everything that he wants every single time. Trump wants something, they're just going to shut down the government until they get it. And so standing their ground on not, you know, not letting holding the government hostage be an effective tactic, I think is really important. And, uh, you know, the polling shows that um, most people blame Trump for the shutdown, most people blame the Republican Party for the shutdown. So as far as I'm concerned, I think the risk only increases for them on this. And, And, you know, to contrast this to other shutdowns where, the because you know, the joke is usually that you know presidents win shutdowns most of the time, but the difference is is like everyone is affected by health care. Like if if Obamacare had changed because of that shutdown, pretty much every American would have been affected. I don't care if there's a border wall; I won't be affected if there's a border wall, and it's not going to change my day to day life. And so I don't think many people are willing to die on that hill uh, with them.
3: I think I think that they. I think it's really just a perspective thing. So I couldn't care less if Obamacare was passed. I did not want it to pass. And when he shot it down, uh, the talking points on this side of the aisle were the same thing that you're, you're giving out now. What about, Think about the families, think about the workers, uh, which we should be. And, we, and I think everybody agrees that they should receive uh, the back pay, especially in, for those who are working in. There's a question even for those who aren't working, right? Because they still had a job in which they weren't getting paid. And so I, I hear that, but I didn't want that pa- uh, passed and, I, and those same points. And on this time, I think it's important to to have border security in that wall. I think it's been neglected for too long and I want it built. So, and I'm not sure, you know, the, the polls that you're setting out, I don't know if those are the same ones that said that Hillary was going to win or what. But, um, <laughs> but, you know, the point is, is that I think that that what Trump is saying is that he wants a win on this one. He wants it passed. Democrats wanted that same thing under Obama. People would say it's justified because it was for health care. I hear that. He would say it's justified because it's national security it's I hear what you're saying about, though, about uh, about President Trump putting himself into a corner. Hindsight's 2020. We don't know. Right. So we, it's hard to really tell in the game of chess where we're at. But but I think uh, about, you know, three months or so, and we'll know how that played out.
0: So briefly, let's uh, go around the circle here and uh, just briefly tell me how you think this will end. Uh, Megan, how do you think that this shutdown is going to end?
2: So I think it will end in some sort of negotiation. What I am hopeful for is that it ends with this offer that's on the table, the accepting that the Dems have to allot money for border security. We can all agree that we can secure our borders. That's fine. um, And go from there.
1: Uh, We are just a little bit over a week from the greatest American holiday, Groundhog Day. But the day after Groundhog Day is the Super Bowl, where many 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 people will be flying to the fine city of atlanta in the world's busiest airport and that will mark the two-month mark of people not being paid and if i i i suspect that that will not go well uh based off of the current situation if the shutdown has not ended at that point so i i think um if The president is not willing to negotiate and uh, take the offer on the table or something very similar to it in the next couple days. I think the fallout from the kerfluffle of whatever happens Super Bowl Sunday uh, or around that time will be a big part of uh, pushing Republicans to the table and overruling uh, Trump's objectives. Yeah,
3: because the president would hate to see for the biggest game of the NFL to be in a complete shambles because of transportation. I'm sure that that would really get to him to see the NFL have a have a disaster. It on wouldn't their get hands.
1: to him. He won't give a shit. Right. But other other Republicans will care.
3: He would be and so
0: sad. He would be so sad if not everybody could watch Tom Brady play, though.
1: That's true.
3: Well, you know, he he probably sent a I'm sorry text to to Kraft about his loss of funds, but I don't think he has a, 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 a real soft spot in his heart for the NFL. We've seen that before. No, I, I think that um I think that we are going to see somewhere something of a compromise, and it's gonna it's gonna sound like when it, when a presidential debate happens, and as soon as it ends, everyone declares victory. Right? We're gonna get to a point where everybody can declare victory. If I had to t- uh, just get guess from now. It's going to be something a little in between where they are right now. Uh, so they're going to give the amount of money maybe a little bit less for border security. He's going to say, fine, um, uh, you know, I'll take that amount of money. I won't be spending it until we get all of the employees repaid. However, I want X amount of miles of wall where it's most effective. I want 50 miles of wall, 25 miles of wall. He wants some wall so he can go stand in front of some brick and mortar. I could see that being a realistic compromise.
0: I don't have a good sense of what the ultimate deal is going to be. But I think the precipitating event is going to be some sort of economic report that shows growth for a single month approaching zero percent or negative. I mean, I think that will be the push everybody needs to cut a deal, uh, particularly from Trump's perspective, because a contracting economy or an economy that is not growing at the pace that it should be I think that would uh, basically make his uh, reelection bid dead on arrival. Uh, with that, let's move on to our uh, first big topic for this week. Um, so we now have four major uh, 2020 Democratic presidential candidates announced and another five or so that I've sort of labeled as tier two candidates who are also announced and another handful of seven or eight of them. Uh, who are likely to jump in or maybe will jump in. Um, Some of the names at the top of this list, Julian Castro, a former uh, cabinet secretary in the Obama administration, Kristen Gillibrand, senator from New York, Kamala Harris, senator from California, Elizabeth Warren, senator from Massachusetts. Those are all sort of in my uh, tier one category, which y'all are afraid to disagree with when we get to it. Um, the newest entry as of today is Pete Buttigieg, the mayor of South Bend, Indiana. He had, he threw his hat in today. Uh, Tulsi Gabbard, representative from Hawaii. Richard Ojeda, former West Virginia state representative. And a tech entrepreneur, Andrew Yang, who is running on a universal basic income platform. They're among the... Uh, Second tier candidates, the lower tier candidates that we've got in the race right now, um, along with uh, Congressman Delaney from Maryland, who announced that he was running for president like the day after Trump was inaugurated, and so he's been running for a while. Let's just take our first look at the field that we have out there. Um, so, as as y'all are evaluating the Democrats that are jumping into this race what kinds of things are you making your sort of initial judgments on? Uh, Let's start with Luke. So the, the main thing
1: I'm looking for is more time (laughs) because I, I am a big believer in the presidential campaign as being a way to show who is capable of being president. It's not perfect. Every, you know, you're not always going to get the best person, but it, shows you pretty much exactly what someone will be like as president. Like watching Donald Trump on the campaign trail told me exactly what he would be like as president. Same for Obama. I feel like even the same for George W. Bush. Um, and yeah, those are the only uh, campaigns I can remember in my lifetime, but I, I really want more time, but beyond the more time thing, I I'm looking at, you know, how people are announcing and, Uh, What, you know, what issues they're talking about, sort of like if they're hitting the big ticket items or are they kind of uh, moving back and forth on that? Um, So that's that's sort of what I'm looking for right now.
0: Megan, what are you looking for?
2: So I'm looking for people who are going to support the issues that I care about, particularly the ones related to diversity and inclusion, Um, as well as I'm looking for experience. Um, I think one of the things that has kind of bothered me about past elections, both local and National are that there's this idea that someone completely inexperienced can come in and run the government and run it better. And while I understand that mentality, I think that there is something to be said for somebody who has put in their years, understands how things work, and then change it, and then they change them from the inside rather than coming in and saying, I know better, I can do better.
0: Ben, we all know you're in the tank for President Ocasio-Cortez, but as you look at these emerging Democrats, what do you uh is there anything that scares you about any of these candidates or anything you're concerned about from a Republican perspective?
3: Uh no, but if uh if she decides to run, I will have a I will throw a party that night and just and and dance with joy. I would love to see her run. No, I mean, I was just looking through this list and from from this perspective, uh, you know, Castro, I just, you know, I just think that's a hard name to vote for, but that's just me, right? So that's that's neither here nor there. Gillibrand, she has some crazy stuff in her background, just and again, this is all from like a, a non-thorough knowledge perspective, but just from my perspective, she has some crazy stuff in her background. Warren, uh, her DNA test did not go well, and she had everybody getting under her back, so she has some just kind of almost the ridicule factor there. Um, and then uh, on the who's most likely to get in after that, you know, uh, you got Spartacus. You got, you know, old man Biden. Uh, So you got some of these ones. But um, I think, honestly, if I had to say who do I think is like most likely to rise to the top? uh, For me, it would be Kamala Harris. I think that she's pretty well spoken. She has some decent experience. She has played that being reserved and also being a leader. You know, so she's kind of played. She's played. It seems to me like she's played the game pretty well. So of this list right now, I think Kamala Harris uh, would stand a, a good chance of rising to the top.
1: Our current top choices are currently the same.
0: One of the things that I found most fascinating about trying to corral the 2016 Republican field into a way of understanding it was this concept of lanes. Um, You had a lane of establishment Republicans that uh, Jeb Bush was kind of the leader of. You had grassroots conservatives. Uh, I, I Ben, you can correct me. I would put sort of Ted Cruz as the top sort of grassroots conservative from the 2016 race. You had the more social conservatives like uh, former Governor Huckabee, who were really more leaning into the purely social conservative message. Moderates like uh, former Ohio Governor John Kasich. Trump, I think, had his own lane for the entire race. But my favorite category that was always used in all of the uh, stuff that I remember listening to was everyone's second choice, which was Marco Rubio. You couldn't say a bad thing about Rubio, but nobody really loved him all that much. Um, But that's where sort of those uh, Republican lanes were in 2016. Are there any sort of lanes or groupings that you could come up with about the Democrats that have announced and the ones that are most likely to jump in any, any way you guys would group these people?
2: I'm trying to think of how I would group them. And I think the ultimate thing is, I would group them in the lanes that I care about, right? So the ones that are Proponents of diversity and inclusion—the ones who are not the female candidates—while I never want to vote for a candidate just because of their um, their sex or gender orientation or identity, um, it is something that is important for understanding or potentially um, promoting women's interests. And then again, experience, you know, the candidates that have a lot of experience in dealing with tough times and dealing with government changes and dealing with, you know, just kind of nose to the grindstone type issues versus those who are super idealistic and new and have some great ideas, but need a little bit more experience.
0: Luke, what do you think? Do you think any of these groups would split up along ideology?
1: I see a couple groups right now. So the the first group would be the leftists, and I would put um, Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders if he gets in in that group. And so those are basically the the far fringe left of, of the Democratic Party. Uh, and you know, they're pretty similar uh, in their views there. Then there's the old establishment, which would be like, People like Joe Biden would personify uh, that to me, and uh, they're the the older members of the you know establishment wing. Now there's the newer new establishment folks too. Uh, I put Kamala Harris in that wing, and uh, Kirsten Gilbrand in that as well. And then there is the random hodgepodge of outsiders who I would call unconventional candidates. And ideologically speaking, there's not a whole lot that unites them. But there are people who I would say aren't your traditional presidential candidates. They're usually senators, governors, or house reps that have been there for a really long time. And, you know, Julian Castro is a good option, uh, example of that. Tulsi Gabbard's a good example of that. The mayors that are running are good examples of that. And uh, some of the uh, governors like Hickenlooper, I'd also throw in that.
0: Yeah, I'm interested in seeing if they're, I'm interested in two things. I'm interested in seeing if the female candidates kind of form their own group, or if, you know, I think if there were two women candidates, it might be easier to sort of section them off as the women candidates. Um, But I think that having, you know, there's three that I've listed in tier one, Gillibrand, Harrison, Warren, a fourth, Tulsi Gabbard, that I think is tier two, and then a fifth, who may be one of the most intriguing to me, is Amy Klobuchar, senator from Minnesota. I think having five women that may sort of position themselves in different places in the field might avoid, you know, because a lot of this is actually shaped by the press, it's shaped by us in the way that we're talking about it. Five of them that sort of take different positions in the field might avoid having women being sort of sectioned off as sort of their own group of candidates. And I think that that would be good for Democrats. um, Because I think there will be a lot of tension among progressives on is there an obligation to nominate a female candidate or is there an obligation to nominate the candidate that can most easily beat Donald Trump? And in some instance, maybe uh, that person fits both of those categories. Um, the other grouping that I'm interested in is where is is how aggressive Democrats will be on the issue of climate change. Um, Julian Castro, I think, is sort of the leading Candidate right now on climate, in terms of how specific he's been about what he said about that. Uh, But if uh, Washington Governor Jay Inslee gets in to this race, he's in my sort of maybe to be decided category right now. He's somebody who's done things related to climate as governor in Washington. And while a lot of the debate on the left has been around this idea of Medicare for all as a litmus test for Democratic candidates, I think. Climate is sort of the big pressing issue where you need somebody, to me, who's like a revolutionary or somebody who's who can really upset the political consensus, the place that we're kind of stuck on climate issues right now. And everybody has sort of like paid lip service to a Green New Deal, but not been very specific about that. And I think this field will start to thin out and shape itself around who is willing to build a campaign around the issue of climate change, and who is willing to sort of back up their words with actions in terms of what they're willing to put on the line to get uh, really significant things done on that. So one of the names that has not come up in this discussion so far is uh, Beto O'Rourke. He uh, at least seems to be traveling the country, uh, listening to old Taking Back Sunday albums and crying himself to sleep while he writes in his live journal. Um, What do we think Beto is doing?
1: I, I am someone who would consider themselves like tangentially into the Bago thing. Like I didn't like buy in fully, but I am like very interested in him. He's probably at the top of my list of if he runs, I want to see what his campaign is like, because I have a feeling that he could, he probably has like the most potential of any candidate running for me to like move from where I currently rank him. And when I say that he could go up to being my first choice to my last choice, uh very easily i think just based on how he runs um that being said just based off of what i saw from him in his uh race i don't think this is a political ploy i think he just like ran one of the most intense crazy elections in the like in the past 15 years, uh, you know, the final result didn't put him super close to being Ted Cruz became really close comparatively how other Democrats in Texas have done. So, I mean, like he's probably doing this more as an actual soul searching, uh, for himself rather than a, like, this is how I'm going to launch my presidential campaign. Robotic stage one is do listening tour. Uh, that's not the impression I'm getting from it. Maybe, you know, maybe it'll turn out that's not the case, but that that's my impression. And, and the only other thing I would say about him, too, uh, because I think he is like the clearest personification of something I'm really concerned about. I think the worst decision Democrats can make in this race is with going the opposite direction of Bego O'Rourke. We might not need to go all the way to him, but we need to not go with your older, lamestream democratic establishment folks like i think that is the the wrong path and i think bago uh is in the direction we need to be going though he might not be the best candidate to do the thing that he was doing when he was running in texas which is be really uh, authentic get new people involved and make strong you know statements about our values and why we think we're better options than uh the you know our opponents
3: rest in peace joe biden
1: yes
0: um, so let's not keep this only for the Democrats. Um, and I'll, I'll tee this up for Ben, who uh, I think is probably paying close attention to this. Uh, there may be a primary on the Republican side. Uh, John Kasich tends to find himself in the media very often uh, since the beginning of 2017. Um, ben, do you have any sort of early looks as to who might primary the president? And do you think any of those potential people could actually get any traction?
3: I mean, the only name I'm really hearing is Kasich. Uh, I'm not really hearing too many other names. I mean, we've heard some names, but they come and go. They haven't, like, stuck around. I just, the, the appetite is not there for it. It's really not. They may run, but it's going to be a quick election. It's not going to be. The only the only person that I could see that could run, that I would maybe consider supporting, that actually, like, might consider running, but I'm pretty sure they won't, would be Ben Sasse, who's a senator from Nebraska, I believe, and he was never Trump. And he's kind of just taken the Ben Shapiro approach of good Trump, bad Trump. Um, I don't see him running. I could see him running down the line. I'm a big fan of his, but he was never Trump. But I don't think he'll be running. The appetite, if you just go on the ground out there with with GOP people, they they love the president. If you look at the AJC poll, I think 80% of conservatives support uh, the president. And a Republican primary, the appetite is not there.
0: Yeah, I think one of the issues is that all of the candidates that kind of pop up onto my radar, even if only briefly, they're all to the left of the president. And it doesn't seem like there is an avenue to win a Republican primary by being to the left of the president. But it also doesn't seem like there is any room to the right of him, unless he uh, strikes some kind of deal on the government shutdown that uh, angers his base over immigration, but but he seems unwilling to do that. The the other name sort of to the left of the president that seems somewhat intriguing, but maybe is actually a person who could lead a Republican Party that takes a hard step away from Trump if he was to lose in 2020 is Larry Hogan, the governor of Maryland. Um, He is a uh, moderate Republican governor who is a is the governor of a very blue state. Um, But he also in that resume sounds exactly like Mitt Romney. Um, So I think he would have the same sort of problems that That Romney had in terms of speaking to conservatives and in the races that he ran. Luke or Megan, any other uh, Republicans that you're keeping an eye on?
1: I'm not watching any Republicans. I think this is one of those areas, though, that a Republican could surprise people and do a little bit better than folks expect. I, I honestly think someone could run against Trump and be as successful as, like, Ted Kennedy was, but that highlights my main point, which is I don't think there's anyone that can beat him, unfortunately, uh, because I think the, the country would be better off uh, with someone else running in 2020, uh, but... I think it's worth a shot if you're if you're a John Kasich or a uh, Jeff Flake and you've decided that this is how you want to spend your time. Uh, it would be a valuable service to the country.
3: I think that there's two camps out there in Republicans right now, and so there's the Republicans who are just kind of your more moderate money Republicans. They wanted the tax reform and they want to win. The truth is, they want their issues and they want to win, right? They're they're more concerned with the power and the winning than they are the, the issues. And then there are the issue based people, uh, you know, your your ideological conservatives. I have a relative who's, an, who's one of those ideological conservatives who did not vote for Trump. And the reason she did not was because she thought she saw him as a jerk, right? So she didn't want to vote for him because she saw him as a jerk. And uh, a big issue for her is being pro-life. And so he said he was pro-life, but she didn't believe it because he hadn't been for most of his life. And then just kind of come election time, he comes around and is pro-life. Now, after he has done various pro-life things and she has seen the legislation she pushed, now he believes she believes he's a jerk, like she used to believe, but she's planning on voting for him because she, he's pushing the the different policies that she wants. And so the ideological conservatives, think your Eric Erickson's here in Georgia, a lot of those never Trump have come around because he's been so conservative with his policies. And then those who are considered winning, or you know, the, the kind of moderate Republicans who want taxes down and, and want to win, he reduced taxes and he won the last election. So I think that he's got both sides of the Republican Party and and it's an easy path for him.
1: The only thing I would say that, though, is right now there's not an alternative. You know, so it's very easy to say Trump versus a Republican. Yeah, I I support the president. But if there's Trump versus completely reasonable guy who gives me all the same things that Trump gives me, but I don't have to look at my phone every five seconds for an alert about how some terrible federal thing has happened, then I think people would be more willing to take that uh, option.
0: Point made. For whatever it's worth, I've already forgotten about Jeff Flake when I think it was Luke that mentioned Jeff Flake. So I hope you're enjoying retirement, Jeff. Um, (laughs) The... Uh, the other person that sort of hangs over this conversation from a Georgia perspective, um, but hasn't really gotten any play in this conversation is Stacey Abrams. And so let's transition to our discussion of where we think Georgia races are going to stand in 2020. But I want to start with this question of why Stacey Abrams is in our final topic this week and not in our second topic. And do we think that that is fair? Uh, Both Stacey Abrams and Andrew Gillum who ran for governor in Florida, they wound up in some of the closest races for governor in both of those states histories and outperformed previous democrats in the in those in both of those states in ways that we haven't seen in a long time. Um, neither of them have really been in the presidential conversation, you might hear Stacey Abrams name pop up uh, for a potential VP slot. Uh, But Beto O'Rourke, who uh, lost by a worse margin than both Abrams and Gillum, uh, he has been in this conversation, um, even while he's been live journaling. Do Megan, do you think that that is unfair to Abrams or, or to Gillum to not have included them in this conversation? Or do we all actually kind of know that that neither of those people's focus is on the White House at this time?
2: So I don't know that it's unfair, necessarily, I think it's unfair to go ahead and count them out now. But I know what Abrams has been saying is basically she's trying to make her own personal decision about what she's going to run for when she's going to run for it and all that sort of thing. So I think that maybe in some terms it can be seen as respectful to just let her have her time. She gave herself the deadline of March. And the same thing with Gillum. I don't know if he has a personal deadline or not, but I do know that it's a very personal decision to run for any office. And so perhaps giving them the time rather than speculating about it or forcing them into it is maybe just the polite thing to do.
0: Luke, the the races that Stacey Abrams is looking at, or that we think she's looking at are potentially challenging David Perdue in the Senate in 2020 or holding off and taking another shot at Brian Kemp in 2022. Do you have any advice for her about which of these races she would be better off jumping into?
1: I would say the most important thing for Abrams is to not run for an office just because it's available to run for um, I think she has a very strong argument for why she would run against Brian Kemp in four years. I'm sure she can come up with an argument for why she should be the one to run against David Perdue. Um, but sort of the same reason why I don't think she really should be considering the presidency. I th- think David Perdue has a lot of uh, potential opponents on the Democratic side that have been thinking about that race for a lot longer and that have equally credible reasons of, like, why they're running, if not more credible reasons, since they have been pretty focused on building that narrative and building uh, their critique of him. Uh, David Perdue is a senator that I strongly disagree with, Um, you know, compared to Johnny Isaacson. I have a lot of nice things to say about Johnny Isaacson. I don't really have that many nice things to say about David Perdue. I I, I know we're going to get into this, but to kind of, you know, start that conversation, I think this is a very winnable race for Democrats because I don't think Purdue has his ear on Georgia nearly as well as Isaacson has or Nathan Deal did uh, as governor. And so I think Abrams would be doing herself a disservice if she got into that race, if her heart wasn't in it as much as being governor of Georgia is in her heart.
0: Ben, what do you think about this conversation around Stacey Abrams?
3: It's obvious that she's going to be the heavyweight for the Democrat Party for whatever the next major election that she decides to run in, right? Like, she has the infrastructure. She did an amazing job fundraising. She wasn't the the, the person to join, turn Georgia purple, but she was so close. And I think a lot of people see that and respect that and want to, to get her over the finish line. Um, there are a lot of good things, if you're a Democrat in Georgia, to like about Stacey Abrams. If I'm her or if I'm on her team, the things that I'm looking at are – Obviously, the pros and cons of both. Right. And so it's it's a really tough decision. If I'm looking at it, not from the the perspective that Luke is looking at, like what is the right decision to make? If I'm just looking pure political strategy, Uh, she has a lot of momentum right now. And if you wait four years, four years is an eternity in politics. And she would lose a lot of momentum between now and what, two and a half years before she would start to run. She would go through a whole presidential race and pretty much sit that out. Uh, of time of, to be out there and be on the stump, I think that's a tough decision to make whenever she has so much momentum out there right now. And so, uh, you know, that, that name recognition and everything like that. So if she waits around for Kemp, she loses all of that momentum uh, and you don't know what you're going to get in Kemp, right? So Kemp could govern like deal and have way higher favorables than he does now. You kind of know what you're going up against with Purdue. Um, and so, he, you know, Kemp in four years is kind of an unknown as to what you'd be running against. Uh, if you run against Purdue right now, I, obviously I, I'm probably going to tend to disagree. But I just don't see that election as much of a toss-up. I mean, he has strong Georgia ties. He's done a good job of coming back to Georgia. He's going to raise stupid amounts of money. He, he already is 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 favoring better than uh, Trump and Brian and in independence here in Georgia. I just see that as being a uh, as as a race that. It's going to be tougher to win than maybe Brian's recent four years.
2: See, I'd love to see her run against Purdue. I hate Purdue's guts. I think he's doing terrible things for the state. And I think Abrams would blow it out of the water and be successful.
3: And you think that differently about Brian Kemp?
2: Um, so Kemp is, as you said, kind of remains to be seen. Um, I don't, we don't know what kind of governor he's going to be. So what, what do you think
0: uh, Purdue's vulnerabilities are? I mean, what, what angles would Stacey Abrams sort of based on her record and, and where she stood in Georgia politics, what do you think?
3: Uh, Trump's puppet. If, if I'm on that side of it, I'm saying, oh, look at him. He does whatever the president says to do, uh, because he is very close with, with President Trump. Uh, I have a friend who works in that office and is his driver and drives him around. He gets calls from the president all the time and um and he's very close to the president he supported the president on just about every agenda item and so you just say if you're stacy you say hey look the senator is is you know just uh is just echoing what the president says but that's going to be coming with the president so since it's in a presidential year it's kind of a package deal anyways and and uh, senator purdue has not put himself in the position to kind of create a well there's the president and then there's me and so um I think that I mean I'm almost I can almost guarantee you're going to have a campaign stop if not several with the president and Senator Purdue come 2020 or 2019.
1: Yeah, I have a follow up question uh, for you, Ben. Would you be more afraid of running against a Stacey Abrams or a Teresa Tomlinson or Scott Holcomb? Like, uh, where where are you on that? I was an
3: advocate for a long time. Uh, not an advocate. I thought that the Democrats should run somebody further over to the left. Uh, to play more to the base and to stop running a moderate, and Stacey did that and she did it well, and, and y'all and, and y'all energized uh, the the Democrat base, and so I thought I think that showed its value. Um, I definitely think that Stacey's going to be a better opponent than either of those two. Um, she'll be do a better job of raising money, I believe, than either of those two. She has better name recognition, and she still has a great story. So I, I think that th- she is probably the better opponent.
0: I think the one thing that may draw Stacey Abrams into this race that I would not. Have thought of before the governor's race was over, before the 2018 elections were over, is that the race for the Senate in terms of who controls the Senate after the 2020 elections is going to be a very high stakes one. Democrats, I think, have a somewhat outside shot at taking that chamber and, particularly, have that shot if you have uh, Trump's popularity down where it is now. But it is almost certainly going to require Democrats winning probably at least two of three, if not all three races in Iowa, North Carolina, and Georgia to get that done. In addition to some of the blue, the, the Clinton states with Republican senators that are probably relatively flippable. And so for Stacey Abrams, it would be a big Badge of honor for her, I think, to be a part of the class of Democrats that overcomes the odds and, and flips that flips the den the flips the Senate into Democratic control. And if you assume a Democratic president in twenty twenty one, you're going to need a Democratic Senate to do anything at all. So I think that there's that level of prestige there that could be a draw to her. Um, but I, judging from what she's been doing now, she's founded this group Fair Fight Georgia, she's on a thank you tour around the state, and talking a lot about Brian Kemp and talking a lot about what is going on in his burgeoning administration, in uh, particularly as it relates to voting access and, and things like that. Her focus and her passion seems to be on state issues in a way that I think would be hard to translate to Washington unless she was going to Washington to be the president.
3: I think that's a tough decision for her to make, obviously, like you're saying, and, and you can hear on the stump, the passion if it's not for the right seat. And so uh, to Luke's point, I think that she's got to run for the seat that she has that passion for that, um, that. As Megan was saying, it's such a personal commitment that she can get out there and speak from the heart about, Hey, I want this one. This is what, you know, I've made this decision for myself, my family, to put myself back out there again for this position. It would be hard for her to do that if she was really not dedicated about the position. I do want to say, though, kind of just wrapping up my position on Senator Purdue. I think because he has done a decent enough job of coming back to Georgia and staying connected to Georgia, because he um, has kind of done what he said he was going to do on the campaign trail, and then the fact that he has rules, commi- uh, he's on a-, a nice slate of committees, uh, as well as just kind of being a fortune 500 CEO and so close with the president, he's going to have more than enough money that he wants to. The bases are the way already with him. So he won't really have a serious primary challenger. He can go straight to the general election. And uh, I just, I really, I see this as being a, a tough race to win.
0: Um. So the parlor game is not only focused on Stacey Abrams at this point, there has already been a challenger to emerge to a uh, newly elected Congresswoman, Lucy McBath in Georgia six. Um, and that is State Senator Brandon Beach from Alpharetta. He has, uh, well, he told Greg Bluestein of the AJC that he was running. Uh, He hasn't made a formal announcement yet, but that is supposed to be coming within a few weeks. And then it is still unclear, the other candidate that um, is sort of waiting in the wings on the Republican side of that is Karen Handel, who held that seat and who lost uh, that race to Congresswoman McBath. What do y'all think about Lucy Macbeth getting a challenger so early.
1: I think Brandon Beach really wants to be a congressman. <laughs> I mean, that's my reaction to it. And you know, um to uh, more seriously, though, I mean, his comments to Greg Bluesting was just like, you know, and it's true, like Democrats put a lot of time and effort into winging that race. And he is taking that seriously. And he believes it will, you know, take him pretty much two years to potentially unseat McBath. And so I, I think I think it's honestly just that simple. I think he thinks it's that it's going to take that much time. And then the other thing is too, uh, you know, Beach had you know, challenging primary himself. He came out of it uh, fine, but he he dealt with a primary. So I I think he understands the fact that uh, there's going to be a primary for the Republican nomination to take the six because uh, that's a coin toss district. And I think he's probably trying to get out ahead of some other folks that like Karen Handel, but even uh, people that hadn't run before that could be a challenge for him to defeat.
2: I think there's also the issue of McBath being seen as a weak candidate. Um, she always kind of has been. That um, that race got very interesting in the state of Georgia, particularly because McBath is such a single issue, single platform candidate. You know, she's all about gun control or gun reforms, and it's kind of interesting when you don't necessarily fall exactly in line with her stance on it as a Democrat. Which you know, I've talked about this before. I will gladly give my DNA, retina scans, whatever, but I want to be able to own a gun. And so, you know, knowing that there are some factions of the Democratic Party that are like me, that are like, OK, what you're doing is great. But also, like, maybe I care about other things. She's a weakened candidate because of that.
3: From the, pr- from the, prim- from the primary perspective, I think Senator Beach is definitely a local heavyweight. So he's on, I mean, he is down and he's a heavyweight down at the Capitol as well. He's on the rules committee, transportation, economic development. He's going to be able to raise a good amount of money. He's the chairman of the North Fulton C, uh, Chamber of Commerce. And so he is well known in the area. He has, uh, a, has been around for a while. He's going to be able to raise a lot of money. He is a local heavyweight and will have a really good shot of winning the, uh, the primary, his, um, and as well. So he also has that. He also has his son-in-law who's a state rep and is really well liked in the area, David Clark. And so they have kind of together been, and, and they're different people, but that kind of extension will not hurt him, uh, in that area. But I think, I think he's a local heavyweight, but I think we could even see somebody, I mean, one name that gets tossed out there is could Tom price come back to run for it again? I mean, he still has a million dollars in his war chest, and uh and no one really knows what he's doing next. And so that's a big name that if he came back in it, I think that that I think he would be a very serious contender. Of course Karen Handel is still trying to make a decision. So I think he's a local heavyweight, and if neither of those come in, you might think he's a front runner or one of the top two or three. But um but there's still some people that could come in that would uh kind of make a, a little bit bigger splash.
0: Do Republicans enter that race thinking 2018 was a fluke and Georgia six is a Republican district that should be returned to Republican hands, or do they take seriously the challenge that they're going to have to defeat a democratic incumbent to take that seat back?
3: I think the answer is yes. Um, <laughs> I think that, I think that they'll see it kind of as like what happened uh, in Oconee in Athens where um where because of kind of the, that, that first two year backlash to Trump, which is pretty normal for a president. Uh, so you had Chuck Williams seat and you had Regina's quick seat uh, head over to the Democrats. And then uh, and then those seats were won back by Marcus Weedauer and Houston Gaines. So I think that they see, okay, this is along those lines. But I also know, know that Republicans see that seat as the demographics, a lot like Rob Woodall's seat are changing. And so they have to take it seriously. I think they're going to, Republicans are going to take the seat very seriously, expect to win it, but know that even if they don't win it, then redistricting is coming after the census and then they can just put more Republicans in that district. That district has so much historic significance from Tom Price moving on to Health and Human Services Secretary, Newt Gingrich has a long history in that district. I think it's an important district to maintain uh, is the view by Republicans. And so I think that they're expecting to win, even if not, they have to put up a fight so that once it's redistricted, then you know it wasn't a lost seat.
0: All right, well, I think we are going to leave that there. Uh, So we've done a lot of looking forward in this show. I think we're going to come back to reality a little bit next week. Uh, This week in the state legislature, the House and the Senate are in joint budget hearings. Um, So we're recording on Wednesday night, and those have continued to go on. Uh, Once we get a chance to review those a little bit and understand where the budget is headed, we're going to talk a little bit about that, along with anything else that comes out of the Gold Dome. Uh, But for now, we are going to leave it there. Uh, So, Ben, thanks so much for uh, joining the pod and uh, getting through your first show with us
3: it was a, it was an awesome time thanks for uh, welcoming me to the gang
0: and megan thanks as always thank you and luke it is uh, good to have you back it's good to be back all right guys we will talk to you next week and until then take care that's our show for the week if you like what you heard share the show with a friend and go over to itunes and give us a rating or a review it really helps other people find our show we'll be back with another episode of peach pod next week Until then, take care, y'all.